Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. Now is the time to consider attending a study retreat with us this summer. Our programs for community leaders and rabbis have been running for decades. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, Danielle Hartman. Rabbi Danielle Hartman has a doctorate in Jewish philosophy from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. His lecture is titled, Israel, Values Nation. Beautiful verses um, from Zechariah goes as follows. Lo b'chayel v'lo b'choach ki'im beruchi amar Hashem That you don't find me in hosts of war. You don't find me in great might. If you want to find me, you find me in spirit. You find me in the content of what I stand for. And the Jewish people throughout our history, one of our most unique features is that we were a small people who weren't greater than in numbers, weren't greater in wealth, were not more beautiful. But this little people walked through history believing that it was their job to be the carrier of big ideas. And as carriers as such, of such, we became individuals who shaped history. And people far mightier than us, far more powerful than us, far more beautiful, far wealthier, far more successful in so many ways, dwarfed in comparison to a small little people who believed in the power of ideas. When we think about Israel, when we talk about Israel, when we feel proud about Israel, when we engage Israel, one of the central challenges that we all hope, we who are part of this institution and part of the Engaging Israel Project, is that part of what we can do is that we can shift gears. Shift what's considered good news. Shift what we talk about when we talk about this country. And one of those shifts is to begin to think about the big ideas that either exist here or ought to exist here. And that when we talk about our love for this country, that our love for this country is intimately connected, not only with what it does, and not only with what it ought to do, but with some of the larger ideas that, that carry the Jewish people's yearning for sovereignty. Sovereignty is not simply that which we yearn for so that we can be safe. Sovereignty is not something that we simply yearn for so that we could own something. Sovereignty is not that we yearn for so that we can be a nation like all other nations. Sovereignty is something that we yearn for 
because we believe there are certain big ideas that our tradition teaches and that make sovereignty of the Jewish people potentially a gift to us and to the world. We're part of something bigger. And to what extent could we see ourselves as part of something bigger? I'd like tonight, similar to what I did this morning, in a, in a slightly, and I apologize, overly squished and dense session, try to tell and talk about what are some of the big ideas that our tradition teaches which could give to Jewish sovereignty a unique force and significance. See, very often when we talk about Israel, we're always talking about the problems. We're talking about the failures. We're talking about the challenges. We're talking about the big issues. We're talking about so many... It's, it's like so often it's, it starts from the newspaper and it just never stops. And we're always playing catch-up. We're always responding. We're letting others determine our conversation. We're, we do this, so then we have to talk about this. Well, we did this and they said that, so how do we respond? And it's not so much just a difference between facts and figures and ideals. It's a question of whether we are responding to agendas determined by others or whether we are helping to shape that agenda. Now, as I said in the introduction a, a few days ago, part of our responsibility as we enter into sovereignty is to become masters of a new conversation, of a different Torah, a Torah of political theory, a Torah in which we think conceptually about what it might mean. What, might, what does a sovereign state mean? What does a sovereign state do? How do Jews do sovereignty? It's another conversation. Now, we're used to telling stories about Chayel and Koach. We know how to tell those stories. In many ways, the Chayel Vachoach became the new Torah of Israel. And that's part of what the Zionists wanted. And that's part of the gift of Zionism, because they took a people and said, you could also have a Chayel and Koach. And part of my lecture this morning was to talk about how do we talk about Koach. But it's not just about challenges. And it's not just about Chayel and Koach. And it's not just about how many startups we have and how many Nobel Prizes we have and, 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 and counting and figures. It has to be about something bigger as well. And so I called tonight's lecture Values Nation, playing off my friend Saul Singer's book called Startup Nation. What are some of the values that we bring? Now here too, and I forget there was somebody over there, I am in, in Values Nation. My task or my, my goal is not to present all the problematics of Jewish values, the goods and the bads and the inner debate, but it's rather to tell a story, my story, about some of the values and ideals that I love about, that I love about this tradition which make me excited about the potential for sovereignty. If all we ever do when we talk about Israel is talk about how do we respond to uh, 
to the challenges of state and religion? And how do we respond to the challenges of morality and, more, and, and power? And how do we respond to the rights of Palestinians? All of these we must do. And we must do much better than we're doing today. And we must do so by constantly remembering who we want to be. But I would like us to also do something else. And to realize that Israel is not just a challenge. And sovereignty is not simply the sum total of issues that we have to deal with. But the decision of the Jewish people to leave exile and embrace sovereignty creates an opportunity for some of our best and biggest ideas to enter into a public discourse. And we have to talk about them. Because if Jews don't talk about sovereignty, if they don't talk about its potentiality, if they don't talk about some of the big ideas, if they don't speak about where they are in this story called sovereignty, then sovereignty in Israel will always be alien to them. It'll be something that's far away, that either is forced upon them when, they're, when, um, when it fails, or gives them a short, instant, quick sugar high when it succeeds. This living country, this project, or Alfredo, I think you were the one who told me not to call it project. This, uh, no, this, this, no, you told me not to call it experiment. This, this project of the Jewish people is something that requires of all of us to think, to talk. Talk sovereign aspirations. And what I'd like to try tonight is to model such a conversation. And in doing so, I want to talk about sources which all of you know in your sleep. I don't want to, there's no innovative ideas that I want to share with you tonight. There's no unique chap on some text that, wow, I never saw that text before. Actually, my goal was to do precisely the opposite. And to model what I hope could be a conversation that you will do in your synagogues. Pick your big sovereign ideas. Use these if you so chose. And if not, pick your own. But begin a process of rewiring the conversation of the Jewish people. Not talking only about Qassams, and not only talking about Iran, and it's so enticing, because you're so relevant when you talk about Iran. And when you condemn Iran in your shuls, it does, you are so profound. And you might even be called controversial. And there's nothing better than to be called controversial. Oh, wow, the rabbi told Ahmadinejad. He, he gave it to Ahmadinejad. We did it. Now, do it sometimes. And you know this is an institute that forgins to rabbis. Anything that makes your rabbinate a little more peaceful and successful, go for it. Listen, if this gives you a good month, it's a mitzvah to do. And who cares? It always has to be so highfalutin. So who cares? If you got a good month from it, and from time to time, and if you had a really bad week, go for the anti-Semitism speech. <laughs> no, it's always there waiting. It's there waiting. And we can call it forward, and we could unite together as we collectively vote and declare, we Jews condemn the anti-Semites of history, and we do so with those who showed up in shul under the great aspiration that this will profoundly change history. That's okay. We all know. And listen, who doesn't have speech number two and six? And when you have to speak every single week, to have a speech number two and six, which is safe and guaranteed, go fantastic. 
And in certain environments, you might even push in an Obama speech. Whatever you got to do. But part of what part of what's going to make this country significant is if we also have another conversation. Is if we train our people to hear this conversation, and it's a much it's 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 a, it's a harder conversation to hear because it doesn't give you the same instant gratification, but it sets a vision of something, and the people who talks about that vision, who people who talk on that level, is the people for whom they're setting the grounds for Israel to have a place in their lives, not an Israel which you always agree with, and not an Israel of blind adulation, but an Israel of meaning. And so I would like to, tonight, try my version of what I think is, is vision nation. What is the ruach of this sovereign state? What are some of the big ideas that we bring to the conversation? Now, every political entity, every social environment, as we try to live with each other, as we try to think about what is a just society, as we try to think about what we owe each other, what each, what was the loyalties that we should give to each other and, 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 and that people deserve, um, deserve to receive from us. When we think about our social structures, there are so many different aspects that we think about. And tonight I'd like to just focus on three of those dimensions of social life that a sovereign entity struggles to think about and struggles to respond with. A sovereign entity has to reflect on how we think about people, how we think about property, and how we think about ideas and speech. And I'd like to offer some of the beautiful ideas of our tradition on each one of these dimensions. People, property, and ideas. People. One of the most basic, oh, and, and one more, I apologize, introductory statement. When I talk about the big ideas of Judaism, I do not assume that any of these ideas are unique. I'm not assuming that it's unique. I'm not assuming that we're the first ones to present them. I'm definitely not assuming that we're the only ones to promulgate them today. As I've said over and over again throughout, I don't know, for the last decade, anytime you have something unique, which is only yours, it probably stinks. If nobody's copied it, you probably want to drop it. If you're the only one, you are the only one, nobody in this world of communication has thought, what? leave it alone. Go as far away from it as possible. These ideas aren't necessarily unique, but they are our ideas in the sense that our tradition speaks about them in its own particular way. And as Jews, and this is something that, again, I said in the introduction, when we think about a Jewish state, our challenge is not how to save it from Judaism. Our challenge is how to find those big ideas in Judaism which could save it. It's not how to separate the state from Judaism, but it's how to find those parts of Judaism which could make the state more valuable and more worthwhile. And that's part of this values nation. The first idea, and one of the first major big ideas of our tradition, when it comes to people, is the revolutionary concept that all people are created in the image of God. That every human being, qua human being, is embedded with a core value as a human being. 
a value which gives that the essence of being created in the image of God does two important things. It both creates the inherent value to all of humankind, and it also creates a notion of an equality of all humankind. In one of the most, in, in, in a beautiful expression of the concept of Tzelem Elohim, the rabbis in, in tractate Sanhedrin speak about why did God create the human beings with one so that nobody would ever be able to say, your father is greater than my father. But no one could ever say, your father is greater than my father, because all of us were created in the image of God. When we begin to look at people, when we look out in the world, we don't start with Jew or non-Jew. We don't start with enemy or friend. We don't start with Israelite or non-Israelite. We start with another core understanding. An understanding that creates huge potential for our political life. And that is the notion of the fundamental value and the fundamental equality of all humankind. This principle does not only express itself and does not simply stop with the question of rights. It goes further in, 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 in the way we look at people and their place with, as their place within a covenantal relationship with God and their place as significant co-religionists with us. In one of the most beautiful expressions of this, Maimonides in his Laws of Shemitah Yovel speaks about how the Jewish people were divided amongst tribes. And one of those tribes is the Levite tribe. A tribe dedicated, given unique rights, and dedicated to worship God. Dedicated to live with God. And set aside as such. And then he, he says as follows, The law shevet levi bilvad, not shevet levi alone. Elakol ish ish mikol ba'eolam. But any human being, from any of the inhabitants of the world, Jew or non-Jew, irrespective of your race, irrespective of your gender, irrespective of your ethnicity and your religiosity, whose spirit moved him and his intelligent intellect and his intellect reached a level sufficient to understand that he must separate himself and stand before the God, before God, etc., etc. Maimonides says, this person is and is a hareza kodesh kodesh kodeshim. This person has become the Kodesh Kodeshim. That a human being could be Kodesh Kodeshim, irregardless of your religion, irregardless of your race, irregardless of your national or ethnic origin. That as a human being, qua human being, created in the image of God, you are capable of reaching the ultimate, the ultimate height of closeness to God. That the door to religiosity does not simply walk through our tradition. That Judaism does not own God. That chosenness might create a unique relationship, but could never create the foundational relationship to God, which always precedes the principle of chosenness. This notion of being created in the image of God, and that all human beings are, are, have within their potential, the ability to be Kodesh Kodeshim regardless of where you pray, 
And regardless of where you've come from, and regardless of who your fathers are or mothers are, is one core idea which when it, when it enters into a sovereign domain creates foundation number one for a revolution. It creates a completely different way in which you look at people and look at the responsibilities of your society. It also creates a model for how a religious tradition lives and can live with other religious traditions. For one of, we all know, one of the great problems of monotheism is that it creates the greatest idolatry ever created in humankind. That precisely the notion of one God has enticed so many religionists to believe that they own God and in so doing elevate them or their own religious tradition to the level of an idol, an idolatry. A religious tradition which stands and says, we all stand and worship one God and every human being is capable of being Kodesh Kodeshim, is a big idea, worthy, not simply of a seminar, worthy of a political party. Worthy of a political party. What does that mean? When it comes to property, so much of us, of our societal aspirations, is to own. We have a right to own. The essence of a nation's sovereign state is to determine what we own and what you don't own. It's to create borders. It's to create rights. It's to regulate mine and yours, good fences and all. Our tradition asks us, and here too again, the notion of God enters into and offers another concept. One of the beautiful ideas coming out of Leviticus 25 is a verse 25, verse 23. After God speaks about the fact that on the Jubilee year, all land must be returned to its original owners to, to fulfill, as I said again this morning, that poverty should not be inherited, but that, um, that, that, that there is a chance of constant rejuvenation, that you have a chance to start again. Now, why should I give up the property that I bought? So what if it was yours? It's not just simply finders, keepers, what's the other part, losers, weepers. I bought it. I bought it. I earned it. I sweat for it. It's mine. How much pain and suffering is promulgated in the world by that one word, mine? Mine. It inspires us. We fight for it. We kill for it. And our tradition offers you a thought about mindness. When it says, I know it's yours. I know you think it's yours. No part of the land will be sold in perpetuity. Because you want to know who the land, who, who's, who, who really, who's the mine? It's the mine with the capital M. It's mine. Ki gerim v'toshavim atem imadi. For all you could ever reach is a notion of being a stranger with me. Sovereignty gives you ownership. Sovereignty gives you a place and a claim. But never claim and never have a notion of property 
and of mindkeit, which makes you so filled with yourself and so focused on everything that you must do in order to perpetuate that which is yours. Take a step back and remember that one of the goals of being a person of faith and one of the consequences of being a person of faith is to recognize that there is always someone above you. And the maximum that you could ever reach is to be gerim v'toshavim atemim That too could have a profound impact on your political policies. could have a profound impact on your notion of strangers, of rights of strangers, on the way you divide your land, on the way you protect your land. But even more than that, not only at its core are you gerim v'toshavim imadi, which is an interesting way to walk through life. One of the beautiful ideas about property is one of my favorite Mishnayot, and that is the first Mishnah of, of, of Baba Metziah, and where which I teach at any opportunity that I can. Shnayim ochzim betalit. Zeomer Zeomer Two people are holding on to a garment. And what a description of, of the human condition. Every garment that exists always has two people holding on to it. That's what it means to be and to live in a human society. Wherever you go, there's always going to be somebody else who thinks that what you think is yours is mine. We live in the midst of a scarcity principle. And it's precisely because of that scarcity that we have to delineate so often. It's mine. No, it's I found it. I was here first. No, you, I was here first. What are you talking about? And let's go back and forth and back and forth and spend hundreds of years killing each other, arguing over who was really here first. I found it. And if I was here first, guess what that means? Do you know what that means? It means, Kula Shali. That's the Mishnah. Animitzatia. No, Animitzatia. Kula Shali. I found it. And therefore, it's all mine. And only mine. And there will always be someone who will say, it's all mine. And we could equip students. I think, Yehuda, you said this today. We could equip students with all the facts and figures. And they're ready, and they're going, and they're ready to protect. And oh, they're fantastic. And then they're going to meet somebody smarter than them. Because you gave them an intensive six-hour seminar on all the history of the Zionist conflict and said, you're now equipped to go and defend Israel. And you have all the facts and figures you need. And you're just waiting for someone. You're going to say, Ah, dear Yassin, I know what really happened. And I have all, I got it all. I'm ready. And then you're going to encounter someone who went to an eight-hour seminar. <laughs> Who's going to say, Ah, Kulashali. It's all mine. I'm first. You said you were first. Ah, there wasn't even this and you were this. And, ah. So what do you do? What do you do about mine? Knowing fully well that mine is always subject to debate. Our Mishnah 
has a very simple solution, which is a solution which, at least on the surface, is deeply problematic. Isn't it important to find out who really found it? Who was really here first? Who does it really belong to? Let's get that straight. And if we could just get that straight, if I could just prove that Jerusalem was always important to the Jews, then we've solved the problem. Especially if I could prove that it was important to us, and it's not even mentioned in the Quran. Wee! We won! We haven't mentioned 47,000 times, and you don't even have one reference. What more? Case closed. It's all mine. Oh, what a great story and a great day. And if you could just know that, oh, wonderful. Our Mishnah says, grow up. I know you think it's all yours. And it actually might even be all yours. And it actually might be that you found it first. And I'm sure somebody found it first, and you might even be certain that it was you. But guess what's more important than mine? What's more important than mine is the notion that we are able to live together in this universe. And therefore our Mishnah says, Yachloku, divide it. It's a big idea. It's a big idea waiting for a sovereign entity to come and say, what, what happens when I take an idea of Baba Metziah and enter into a political discussion in which I recognize that even though two people say, Kula Shali, we end up saying, Yachloku. It's another big idea. Ideas. One of the big ideas of our tradition is the text that we all quote, Shachar Smenchem Maru. Eilu ve'eilu divrei Elohim chayim. It's more interesting than Shema Yisrael anyway. What a fascinating concept. When we come to think about ideas, we believe that at the core, no single idea could exhaust authenticity. No single idea could be the exclusive truth. That's not to say that there has to be absolute relativism. But at the outset, we have a God who can say to Hillel and Shammai, you said halacha kumoti, and you said halacha kumoti, and it's also almost a version of kula sheli. I own the truth. It's not just that the property is mine, the truth is mine. And our tradition turns to the world and says, I need you to, in to integrate the concept that there is more than one truth. I'm not saying that every truth, is, every opinion is true. But as you're committed and convinced about your truth and about the value that you care for, when you encounter another idea, you always have to recognize the possibility that another idea might be as equally true as yours. What a way to look at debate. What a way to walk and talk with people. What a way to think about 
other people, other ideas. What a way to think about yourself. You can never, ever claim that you are the sole conveyor of truth. That you own the category. It's a completely different way of walking through the world. It's a completely different way of thinking about other people. And that too could, at least in theory, create a fascinating different political sovereign entity in which how does the notion of Elu Elu Divrei Elohim Chaim get translated into a political reality? Another big idea. In that process of ideas, in that process of how we conduct conversation, another fascinating and truly challenging idea of our tradition is to ask us that we recognize that criticism, that debate, is not a symptom of rejection and animosity but is rather a precondition of love and relationship. When you encounter other ideas, at the first stage, you have to realize that at least potentially you're encountering somebody who could be just as much or just as authentic in the eyes of God as you are. And when you encounter an idea, an idea which is challenging to you, an idea which is arguing with you. It's so simple and so easy to ignore the idea and accuse the person of disloyalty. Debate? Lovers don't debate. Lovers agree. Lovers don't argue. Lovers support. Our tradition teaches us the mitzvah of ocheach tochiach is a part and grows out of Ahavtalaracha Kamocha. It's not simply the notion that a society needs critics in order to improve. It's not simply that there's always a value to hear other ideas and to listen to them. But it's the powerful message that we have to internalize that criticism is a consequence of love. That debate is a consequence of love. In Ilchoteot chapter 6, if you see Mishnah 7, if you see your friend doing something wrong, you are obligated to try to bring them back to the right path. For it says, And when you do so, you must do so privately between him and himself. Speak to him gently and with a kind tongue. And to tell him that you're not doing any of this, but only for their sake. So often, a culture of debate is the foundation for animosity. We create a notion of societal loyalty by a concept that if do you if you agree with me or rather you love me by showing that you agree with me you love me by showing that you're willing to declare amen regardless of what it is that I do are you really with me if you're with me to be with me in thick and thin what does it mean to be with me through thick and thin 
Well, in our tradition, to be with you in thick and thin means never to stop criticizing you. I'm with you through thick and thin. That means no matter where you go, no matter what you do, I'm never going to stop caring about you enough to allow you to be mediocre, to allow you to be wrong. But that my commitment and love to you has to express itself in my willingness to criticize you. Every one of the ideas that I mention, being created in the image of God, the notion that that all human beings, kol olam, could be kodesh kodeshim. The notion that we are gerim v'toshavim in God's world and we could never be more than that. The notion that shnaim achzim v'talit, that the way in which you deal with conflict always has to be yachloku. And it's not about being right, it's about accepting upon yourself standards which enable people to live with each other. For it is always preferable to enable people to live with each other than to be right. And when mind doesn't enable that, then mind must be secondary. To live in a world in which you know that you can never exhaust authenticity. And that anybody you meet at least potentially could be as correct as you. And that you show the greatest respect and love to people by criticizing, by debating. And you never create a community in which love and loyalty is expressed solely and exclusively through waving of flags. And I don't know if I mentioned it to whom, but one of the things that I find so fascinating, almost shocking, is how a community which takes religious pluralism as for granted forgets its principles of religious pluralism when it comes to the state of Israel. What does it mean? What are some of the big ideas for which a Jewish sovereign state could be a blessing? And finally, one idea that I thought a lot about this year and connected to very deeply on a personal level comes from Dvarim Kafbet. If you see your fellow's axe or sheep, Ox or sheep gone astray, don't ignore it. Take it back to him. If your fellow does not live near you, or you don't even know where he is, bring it home and keep it there until your fellow claims it, and then give it back. This is what you should do to his ass. This is what you should do to his garments. And this is what you should do to anything that your fellow loses. And you find you must not remain indifferent. The notion of being a moral human being, the notion of being a citizen, the notion of what we owe each other, is not to remain indifferent. That a Jewish society is a society which creates citizens who understand that the core feature of their responsibility to each other is to be fellow non-indifferentites. And here, let me even play on this a little more. It's not tikkun olam. It's tikkun hashchuna. It's not repairing the world. It's not falling in love with some place and doing what's known as tzedakah tourism. 
finding some place that you're going to land with for a few weeks. There are some people who are very serious. And that the only challenge that I could engage is something that's far away. But it's right in your neighborhood. Who's walking in your neighborhood in pain? Who's your next door neighbor who might need something? When's the moment when you change the channel and you say, I just don't want to hear? And it's so much easier to see injustice that's far away because it doesn't really claim you in the same way. Lotu Chali Hitalem, don't remain indifferent. It's about your friend's ox. It's about his ass, which is a pain in the ass. Because you have to watch it. And it eats, and it makes dirt. And it's aggravating, and you don't want to take care of it. But to be a decent person, all we want of you is to walk through life knowing that to be a Jew is to be someone who doesn't remain indifferent. What a beautiful idea. Each one of these ideas, as I said beforehand, none of these texts are rare, are hidden, are esoteric. What are your great texts? What are your big ideas? What are your ideas that you think a sovereign nation should embody? Jewish political theory, engaging Israel, is about knowing international law. It's about knowing, as I mentioned this morning, Rawls and Aristotle and Walzer, etc., and Kant, and to know various theories. But it's a mode of talking. It's a frame of mind in which you mine our tradition for its great ideas, which you want to say, this is why we need to be sovereign. This is what it means to be a vision nation. This is my vision for this people. This is why I want to leave a life in which all I can do is be shaped by somebody else's political entity. And I want to enter into that political discourse. And I don't want to simply have my tradition define what I eat and my spiritual quest. I want my tradition to define my public sphere. Now it's true. One of the gifts of the North American public sphere is that we Jews are also invited to participate there. This, however, this sovereign project of the Jewish people is a project that could lay claim to our loyalty if it could lay claim to our consciousness. And it will lay claim to our consciousness when you, you are idea leaders, every one of you. That's what you are. You are people who are given the task of elevating the ideas of our people. What are the ideas that you put forward? Put forward great ideas. Put forward fascinating concepts of saying, well, this is what I want to be. Now, am I saying that this is what Israel is? You already heard me say this 20 times. Obviously not. But Israel will only be if we create a conversation about what it can and ought to be. Israel will only be if we stop only carrying the agenda of building a country and start again thinking about not just building it, but first about what are the ideas that it ought to stand for. And then that will give us a blueprint of what we can build. If we thought leaders 
begin to train our people to think in this language, to tell this type of story, then it will in fact be true, not only about God, but also about our sovereign state, that it is not Bechayel, and that it is not Bekoach, but it is rather Ki'im Beruchi. You have been listening to Rabbi Dr. Daniel Hartman, President of the Shalom Hartman Institute. You can hear more from Daniel and other Institute scholars by subscribing to this podcast. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.